0: And turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter eight, and beginning with verse five. Romans chapter eight, beginning with verse five, and we'll be reading through verse eleven. Romans chapter eight, beginning with verse five, and we will read through on verse eleven. If I uh, spend some time telling you of maybe two opposing concepts that were familiar to you, you would you come to a quick realization that they, they just don't mix. So for instance if I used the word oil and water, you know that oil and water don't mix. These are just you know properties, that they're just reality, they just, they just can't mix. Sometimes we actually use that expression as it relates to people. Maybe there are people in your life that you can't mix with. You can't even stand to be in the same room of them, with them. And so these, these are just true things that, that happen when we think about um, you know, these kind of two opposing realities. And so one of the two opposing realities that we see all throughout Scripture is sin and holiness. Or sin and God, the sinful nature. And as we're going to see it expressed here in this text, walking in the spirit being in the flesh, or being carnal, and being in the spirit, that these are two realities that do not mix. They don't even overlap in any any way, shape, or form. They they cannot coexist at all. And so we're going to be looking at these, these two concepts that were actually introduced to us last week as we got to the end of verse 4. So if you remember from verse 4, it really began verse 1. We learned there is now no condemnation to those who are are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one of the things that we find, that because we are now in Christ Jesus, if you look in verse 4 of chapter 8, because we are in Christ Jesus, and because of what he has done for us on the cross, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So it's one thing to be said, there is now no condemnation which is incredible in and of itself, but it's also another thing to be able to say that now it can be truly said of us, if we are in Christ Jesus, that we have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Maybe that's not a great way to say it because it may imply this idea that we fulfill it, but if you notice in the text that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us, it's fulfilled in us. And then he attaches on here a further description of what it means to be in Christ or for those who there's now no condemnation, if you'll notice that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who what? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in the concept of walk, it relates to behavior and life, how we live our life so the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who live in the spirit and not in the flesh and so beginning in verse 5 he is going to elaborate or give further explanation about what it means to live in the spirit as opposed to the flesh how you live flows out of who you are now that there is no condemnation you have been justified. You are in Christ Jesus. Now, who you are becomes what you do or how you live. So, if you're in the flesh, then you live in the flesh. But if you're in the spirit, then you live in the spirit. So, this is what he's going to be communicating here as we begin reading in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. And here's what God's word says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, For to be carnally minded, or maybe to say it another way, some of you may have in your translation, to be fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And notice in verse 9, there's this great change. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this text together. Father, we just ask that you will speak to us through your word and we pray that she will be present in your word. And Father, I pray that she will help me to communicate what the text says and to communicate it in the spirit that the text is being communicated in. And Father, I also pray the prayer of John the Baptist that I may decrease so that you may increase and may the only thing that people see is the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, as we begin looking at verse 5, if you'll notice that verse 5 starts with the word for. It's a little conjunction, but it's usually important in Scripture because for is telling us that there is an explanation coming. So as he began in verse uh, verse 4, he talked about these two realities, those who walk according to the Spirit and those who walk according to the flesh. And now he's going to build off of the last part, of verse 4, and speak about our behavior and the way that we live our life stems from whether we live according to the flesh or whether we live according to the spirit. Now, if you'll notice, in verses 5 through 7, with these two opposing realities, flesh and spirit, there's a repetition of the verb and the noun mind. And translations have chosen a variety of ways to express this and different um, ideas. So, for instance, some translations, think about the things of the flesh or the spirit. Or, have their outlook shaped by the flesh or the spirit. In another, and those who are dominated by sinful nature, think about sinful things. And those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about the things of the spirit. Now, I actually like the idea of an outlook that's shaped. I think this really expresses the idea that is set before us here in verse 5 when it talks about set their mind. So it's a verb form of mind, and sometimes we, we actually use that in the English way when we say mind your own business or mind your manners. Right? You need to be thinking about your own business, not being worrying about somebody else's business. You need to think about your own manners. All right, so the same concept is being used here, but I think that the idea of having an outlook that's shaped by the spirit or an outlook shaped by the flesh actually has more of a broader meaning that's being communicated here in this text. Now, why does he say the mind? Why an outlook? Why, why is the idea of thinking? Well, the reason is because the mindset is our fundamental orientation. It's the conviction and the heart attitude that steers the course of our life. The the idea of a mind refers to our intellectual activity and involves our dispositions and our inclination. So everything in our life, what we do, how we behave, it all actually originates within our mind. Now, the idea of, of mind here is more than just thinking about our brain as an organ or about our thinking, but I think it's maybe some way in the concept of heart. It speaks about the totality of who we are. But with the mind, so the mind's engaged in the spirit, the mind's engaged in the flesh, and so if the mind is thinking or has that outlook, then then it really expresses who, who we are. So that's why he begins with the idea of you know, have an outlook that's shaped by the spirit or in the opposite way, an outlook that is shaped by the flesh. So everything is filtered through our minds. And whether we have an outlook shaped by the flesh or the spirit determines what kind of choices we are going to make that lead to behavior, that then leads to the kind of life that we live, or as expressed in verse four, the mind of the flesh or the spirit determines whether we walk according to the flesh and according to the Spirit. So having an outlook shaped by the Spirit is crucial if we are going to live lives that is pleasing to God, if we are going to live in such a way that we demonstrate that there is indeed no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So having a mind that's controlled by the Spirit is going to demonstrate whether we have truly been justified by faith. I think it's at this point, and I've I've talked about this on a number of occasions, that when we talk about, as we talked last week, about no condemnation, that relates to our standing As we stand before God, we stand under absolutely no condemnation. So when we stand before God's judgment, he looks at us and he judges us innocent. Why? Because we're in Christ. But he doesn't see Corey when he judges me. He sees Christ. I am in Christ. I am covered in Christ, which means that the righteousness of Christ is now applied to my life. So that's our standing in Christ. But the idea of salvation and justification is more than just about standing. It's also about transformation. And I think this is one of the things that Paul's getting at here in this text very clearly. And he's done this a number of times. That when he talks about grace, there's nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves. If we're judged by what we do, we're going to be judged guilty. So we need to be judged in Christ. So not that there's no condemnation there's a tendency for this to lead into our minds, well, if there's nothing that we can do, then it doesn't matter if we do anything. So if you remember back in chapter 6, or actually back in chapter 5, where Paul speaks about how where sin abounds and grace abounds even more. Paul's a very smart man, and he knows people very well, and he knows the kind of questions they're going to be asking. Well, if that's the case, why don't I keep sinning so grace will abound? Even more. So the more sin, the more grace. So I'm just going to sin more, so there'll be more grace more, and then that way God will be glorified. And you remember how Paul approached that discussion. If, if we could really get into the mind of Paul, he probably started off, these are a bunch of fools. And then he says, absolutely not. That's not where we go with that. So Paul believes that the standing... Before God, you are justified, but that also leads to transformation. Now, if your life does not change when you are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are demeaning the grace of God. I know that there are sometimes there are, uh, dramatic changes that happens in people's life when they become saved. Sometimes there are changes that happen slowly as they mature in Christ Jesus. But there is a change that happens. And the reason that there's a change is because when you become a believer and justified, you are not in the flesh. If you're truly justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you are not in the flesh. You are now in the spirit. The spirit dominates you. The spirit controls you. The spirit has changed your mind. You are now inclined to the things of the spirit. And you're going to reflect the spirit in your life now, the Spirit is effective in shaping our mind and shaping our walk because He is alive. He imparts spiritual life. He does not just speak rules or laws and tells us to do them. He brings the law and writes it on our hearts and creates a life that loves law and delights and treasures Jesus. God commands become God's enabling. So the Spirit comes. He dwells within us, He empowers us, and He enables us to faithfully follow God and to keep His commands. So God's commands become His enablings. What we cannot do, God resides within us by His Spirit and empowers us and enables us to do that which He has called us to do. Now, the believer's life has been totally transformed in such a way that that there is a love for the commands of God, there is a delight in faithfully following the commands that God gives us. Now, I think there is a fundamental difference between keeping the commands by God's grace through his enabling spirit and legalism. When you have God's spirit in you as a Christian, you now want to keep God's law, to faithfully follow God in his command, because you delight in it, because you love it. Because now you treasure it. God has now opened your eyes by his spirit and you see the glory in this. You see the wonder in living faithfully for God. Now, legalism, on the other hand, is about the self. Legalism is what can I do? If you notice that, what can I do? What must I do? It is fundamentally not about God's glory and living a life that is pleasing to him, but it's fundamentally about one's own glory. As a rich young ruler came, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, you can't do anything, essentially. So what the spirit of God does is he comes in and now he has changed our mind, he has shaped our mind, and now he has given us the ability to faithfully follow The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things I, I think we ought to think about in this text is how do we have an outlook shaped by the spirit? Now, the first starting point is obvious justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being saved. Which not only changes our standing where we go from sinners to righteousness, from guilty to innocent, but also in the context of salvation is transformation that when we talk about salvation in regards to transformation, we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification, where we as Christians progressively become holy, and we live in holiness before the Lord. So the first starting point is to be saved, because apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus, our thinking is worthless, and our hearts are darkened, as we learned in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. And with this new life that we now have in the Lord Jesus that transforms the mind, the outlook and the disposition we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus by feeding the mind the things of the Spirit. We have to think about this. What are we putting in our minds? What is it that our minds are receiving the most of? Now, if you know in this culture that we are mainly being exposed to the things of the flesh. This isn't, uh, you know, when you turn on the TV that anymore, there's no um, Andy Griffith type shows. Um, some of the things that we see now, or even commercials that we see, are fundamentally engrossed and engaged in the flesh, and it's not in the spirit. So we need to be looking for ways in which we can feed our mind the things of the spirit. Of course, these things, these, these concepts should be something that all Christians know. we need to be taking up this book and reading and feeding our minds. Like Everything that we do in life needs to be filtered through a biblical outlook or a biblical worldview. How we take every part of our life. There's not anything that you go through in life, any decision that's to be made, any cultural issue that's out in this world that we cannot have an outlook about this or a thought about this that is not shaped by the Spirit of God. But there is an objective way in which that happens, and that's through the Word of God. So we need to be exposing ourselves more to the things of the Spirit, God, to the Scripture reading, to prayer, to fellowship with other Christians, to especially to the gathering um, of the church together. So our, our time with God, as we spend more time with God as we spend more time focusing on our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ through his word, through prayer, in the context of worship. It's one way that we develop a mindset of spiritual things, but only if the mind is really involved. So we need to have an outlook that's shaped by God's spirit. Now, if you'll notice as we move on, that the result of fleshly outlook is death. If you'll, the concept of verses 6 through 7. Right? So the, the result of a fleshly outlook is death, but an outlook captured by the spirit of God It's life and peace. Now, in verse 7, Paul explains why carnal, fleshly outlook results in death. The flesh, the carnal, sinful nature fiercely opposes God. If You'll notice there in the text how it says in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. So this is obviously opposed to what the spirit is. So the spirit produces life, And it produces peace, whereas the flesh produces death and also produces enmity, being fiercely opposed to the things of God. Now, just think about the fierceness of the flesh's opposition to God, especially in relation to some of our previous discussions about the law, mainly in Romans chapter 7. So in the discussion about the law, Paul clarified that the law is not sinful. It is actually good, holy, just, and spiritual. But sin is so fiercely opposed to God that it takes God's law and establishes a base of of operation to oppose God. The law says do not covet. When we look at the law in our simple nature, apart from the Spirit, what do we do? It says don't covet. I'm going to covet. We've talked about this in great detail it's just part of human nature. When somebody tells you do not do that, what do you do? Don't do it. You see a sign. It says wet paint, don't touch. Can't help yourself. You just touch it. And that, that's multiplied a hundredfold, a thousandfold, whenever we see the law of God. It says don't do these things. And so sin is so fiercely opposed to God that it establishes a beachhead, a base of operation, And it inflames that desire within our sinful nature to do the things that God tells us not to do. And so, as a consequence of this, because of its fierce opposition, since it opposes God, it's not subject to the law of God, and importantly, it cannot keep God's law. In the flesh, you cannot keep God's law. There is nothing you can do. And this leads to death. This is the consequence of sin. When sin entered the world, then death came. But now the use of the word death death here is more than just physical death. It's death as an eschatological judgment. So eternal death, being judged by God. Sin results in death, physical death, and ultimately justice. And then the consequence of this is all summed up in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God flesh is fiercely opposed to God. It does not subject itself to God's law. It cannot do the law. And as a result, it does not please God. The flesh desires to please itself rather than God, and its actions opposes that which God demands. A fleshly person is unable to do anything that pleases God. This does not mean that they cannot do good, but that they do it irrespective of God. Now, one of the things... I think it's important to remember that whenever I'm talking about the flesh, I think there's a tendency for some of us to think that this is gross sin, right? Murderous and maybe sexuality and sexual desires, but being in the flesh can be something subtle. It could be jealousy, lying, being a busybody. I mean, all these things that we don't think are a problem in our life, that's what being in the flesh is. And so don't just think that this is just talking about these, these wicked people out here who are just disgusting people. I can't believe they behave and act that way. But being in the flesh even happens in the context of people who call themselves Christians. But we'll see this here in just a minute. Now this is something that uh, Paul will speak about very briefly. But So notice as we move to verses 9 through 11. So one of the things we ought to remember beginning with verses 5 through 8, is an outlook shaped by the spirit or the flesh. Having an outlook shaped by the spirit or flesh. But notice what Paul says in verses 9 through 11. To these Christians, I hope I can say this to you as well, with the kind of enthusiasm and the confidence that he does, notice in verse 9, there is a strong change in the direction with the conjunction, but, which is which is coupled with an emphatic you. You can't see this here in your English text, but in the biblical text, there is a reduplication of the word you. So it's as though Paul's saying, but you, you are in the Spirit. So what's true of what he said in verses 6 through 8 is not true of these Christians. Why? Because you are in the Spirit. There's enthusiasm, joy, and confidence as Paul turns his attention from those who are apart from Christ to his readers whom he believes are in the Spirit. Now, there is a qualifier to this statement, if you'll notice in verse 8 or verse 9. But you are in the Spirit, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So he says, I'm saying this to you. This is not true. What I said about the flesh is not true. You are in the Spirit, if you indeed The Spirit of God dwells in you. So there is a qualifier, because he acknowledges the possibility that there are some in the church who claim to be Christians yet are not. Similar to the way that Jesus speaks of those who say, Lord, Lord, and his response to them is, depart from me, workers of iniquity, for I do not know you. In fact, these people that said, Lord, Lord, were people who did miracles. Yet he said, you don't do the works of the Father, so depart from me, I don't know you. So he's very clear here in this text that if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him at all. So if you notice that last phrase, now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So he's very clear. There are two realms of people in this world, and there are only two realms. You are either a Christian or you are not. You are either in the spirit, you either belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you don't. There is no middle category. Now, for years, within American evangelicalism, they have been throwing around this terminology called carnal Christians. That is an oxymoron. It cannot exist. Right now, if you notice here in the text, in my my translation... It translates to flesh, carnal. So it opposes these two realities. You're either carnal or you're in the spirit. You're either carnal or you're a Christian. Now, if you don't believe that, I want to appeal to your ability to actually just read. Because this is what the text actually says. There are two realities. You're either in the spirit or you're not in the spirit. So we really shouldn't be thinking about people and trying to categorize them where we think they are on the spectrum of Christianity. It is true that there are some people that are more mature in Christ, right? But they're either in Christ or they're not. They're either inclined and have a disposition to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit, or they do not. Now this does not say, not suggesting that this says anything about people who struggle with sin, because sin is a reality, We've already seen this in Roman chapter 7, right? Paul says this of himself, I, I want to practice this, but I don't practice it. No wet, Oh, I'm getting ready to say the word wrong again, Brandy. Oh, wretched man that I am. She's so gotten on to me every time I say wretched. I can't say it for some reason. So there's, there's only two types of realities. There's either those who are in Christ or those who are not. Now, as we look at verse 9, there are at least three things that are worth noting in verse 9. Now, notice first the implication of the, of the word but and the previous verses, as it's connected with in verses 7 through eight, three 8. So in verses 7 through 8, there is a description of the flesh's relationship to God. Fiercely opposed, does not submit to the law, cannot submit to the law, and does not please God. But with the usage of but in verse 9 and describing his readers as in the spirit, it means that what was said of those of the flesh in verses 7 through 8 is not true of those in the spirit. In other words, hostility is replaced with reconciliation and relationship. If we are in the spirit, we are in a relationship with God. We're not enmity with him. We're not fiercely opposed to him. We are in a relationship with him. In the spirit... The Christian submits to God's law and does so with delight. In the spirit, he is enabled to submit to God's law. So in the flesh, he cannot. But in the spirit, he is enabled to submit to God's law. And now in the spirit, he pleases God and seeks to glorify him in everything. So what we learn about those in the flesh in verses 7 through 8 is inverted now. Because you are in the spirit, these realities are not true of you. Second is the use of the word dwell. Uh, Or maybe some of you have in your text um, the word live in here. But you are in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And that word is literally the word house. So what that means is that the spirit of God takes up residence in you. He dwells within you. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes and He lives in you. Now, there's something uniquely personal about the reality that the Spirit of God now houses in you. And among many glorious truths about this, this means that you have all of God's Spirit that you need. Why? Because He's in you. He dwells within you. He lives in you. So you have All the spirit that you need to fight off temptation, to exercise wisdom and discernment and giftings and ministry because he lives in you. Which means you don't need to go through your Christian life at some period of time and hoping that maybe I'll get more of the spirit. Because the spirit of God out salvation now dwells within you. He houses in you. He lives in you. So all that you need is available to you now, not later. Now, it may be true that there are sometimes what we talk about different feelings, F-I-L-L-I-N-G-S, that we may be filled at different times with the Spirit, or maybe the Spirit empowers us, enables us, maybe for a work at some time, for whatever reason. But all of the Spirit that you need, you now have, and that you can appropriate through the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, I think this is important, we, we see this a lot here, In Romans chapter 8, take notice of there is Trinitarian language that deserves attention. In the first half of the verse, the Spirit is described as the Spirit of God, and in the second half, the Spirit of Christ. Now, this says much about the person of Christ as it does the Holy Spirit. Christ and God are used interchangeably. He's the Spirit of Christ, then he's the Spirit of God. What does this mean? Jesus Christ is truly God. In every conceivable way that we can think of. But also. It tells us this unique relationship. That the spirit has with God the father. And God the son. The spirit is sent by God the father. And God the son. So this language demonstrates a unique. And intimate relationship that is shared within the triune Godhead. God the father. God the son. And God the holy spirit. And then the last thing that we see in this text. In verses 10 through 11. The spirit gives life. The spirit gives life. So the main point. verse 9 is that the spirit is now is in believers if you trusted in Jesus Christ the spirit lives within you he dwells within you now in verse 10 Paul builds on this by saying that Christ is in you the expression in Christ and in the spirit are not exactly the same idea it is true that if you're in Christ then you're in the spirit and vice versa but different realities are being communicated the shift in Christ has the sacrificial death for sin and the resurrection as a focus, as we'll see in verse 11, which is the basis for the work of the Spirit. So as Christ came, as he lived a perfect life, as he died on the cross for our sins, as he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended into the heavens, and then what did he do? He sent out his Spirit. He sent out his Spirit to be with his people to be with his church. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus makes the statement before he leaves, he tells his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. And why is it to his advantage? Because when he leaves, then the Spirit of God will come. So as a consequence of Christ's death, as his sacrificial death for sin and his resurrection, this is the basis where the work of the Spirit in our life. So, as the Holy Spirit dwells in you, so too Christ dwells in you, and this means two things. First, your body is dead because of sin, which means that because of which means because of sin, we must face death death in our bodies, physical death, which will lead to life, as Christ was raised from the dead, as we see in verse eleven. So, I think the emphasis is it's the tension of living in the overlapping of the age. The Christian is in Christ and the Spirit yet at the same time in this present evil age and in the mortal body. But at the same time, while all these realities are true, there dwells within us a new power, the Holy Spirit, who presents or represents life. And the base of this life is righteousness, certainly to be seen as our standing before God, that is justification. As we've seen in verse 1, there's now no condemnation, because now righteousness is now a quality of who we are, there's life. Sin brings death. Righteousness brings life. Now, the second thing that we find is in verse 11 is that this life is elaborated on. Right? That the Spirit of God gives us certainty, assurance, and hope that even though that this body that we live in is decaying, and even though we're struggling and we're warring against sin in this mortal body, that the Spirit is a pledge, is a guarantee that there will be resurrection life. So notice what we see in verse 11. The Spirit who lives in you is the same Spirit who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Two different times in verse 11 it emphasizes that God raised Jesus from the dead. This emphasis may have been needed to give these Christians and us the hope and certainty of the reality of our own resurrection in the Lord Jesus. Now, there may be an assumption that since Jesus' own resurrection is somehow different than ours, since the Lord Jesus is truly God and we are not, how can we actually be certain that we will be raised like Him? The answer is, is because the Holy Spirit is the one who raised him from the dead. And this is the same Holy Spirit that dwells and lives in us. So the emphasis isn't on the fact that Jesus rose himself from the dead, but that the Spirit of God and God the Father raised him from the dead. So as they raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, they will also raise those of us who are in Christ and in the Spirit of the de- from the dead. Why? Because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit who lives and dwells within us. We need to have an outlook and a mind that is shaped by the Spirit of God. This should be a true reality of all of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we are justified. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. And because of that, that truth, we are now in the Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God who shapes our outlook, not the flesh. And it is the Spirit of God who enables us to live in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to God. And it's the Spirit of God who gives us the hope and the certainty that even though every time we look in the mirror and we see the mortal body that we're living in, maybe we're experiencing the aging process, the the aches and the pains and the illnesses and the struggles and the suffering, that we can have the certainty and the hope that because we are in the Spirit, that we will be raised again. Why? Because He is the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray.